Well, good morning. My name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. I want to thank you guys for coming. Sojourn is this place where we are just that. We're sojourners. This isn't our destination. We are on our way. We are travelers along the way. And so if you've got it all figured out and all put together, then this isn't the place for you. But if you're a sojourner and a struggler and a sinner, then, then we have a place here uh, where we can walk together. And that's our desire is really to journey with one another in community seeking to live life in Christ as, as God has commanded us to live, as the scripture commands us to live. And so each week, as sojourners, we turn to that very word so that we can be commanded by it, so that we can be encouraged by it and convicted by it and live underneath it. And so I'd encourage you guys, if you do have a Bible, to turn to the first book of Corinthians. It's in the New Testament, past the Gospels, uh, and then just Acts, Romans, and 1 Corinthians is the next one. If you don't have a Bible, we'd like to give you one. There's one right over there. You can pick it up and, and, and keep that and take it with you. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll be in verses 10 through, through 17 this morning. And let's just go to the Lord in prayer as we begin to open up his word. Father, it really is our desire to come and sit under your word, to listen to you. We need your instructions. We need your counsel. We need this word. And so help us to, to treat this time as needy people, as people who are seeking what you would have for us. And so God, give us these uh, humble hearts that are willing to receive where we need to receive and that uh, are willing to just lay down anything, any sin that we're holding on to, any idol that we have in our hearts so that we can follow you and glorify Christ. And I pray that that would be what happens during this time is that Christ would be glorified and that the church would be united and built up in love. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. The, the famous Dr. Seuss has written many books, one of which is called the, the Butter Battle Book. I don't know if you've heard of this book, but the Butter Battle Book is a book that he wrote basically between two kind of tribes or peoples. I don't know what to call them because they're creatures that he's made. They're not really people, but you have the Yooks and the Zooks. And if you remember the Butter Battle book, the Yooks and the Zooks are divided. And they're divided on one specific thing. And now pick up some of the story here for you if you're not familiar with it. The story kind of picks up where I'm starting, where a grandfather is speaking to a grandson. And he says to his grandson, I'll try to rhyme the best I can. It's high time you know of the terribly horrible thing that zooks do. In every zook house and in every zook town, every zook eats his bread with the butter side down. Probably more anger than that in his voice. But he goes on. But we yooks, as you know, when we breakfast or sup, spread our bread, Grandpa said, with the butter side up. That's the right, honest way. So Grandpa gritted his teeth. So you can't trust a zook who spreads bread underneath. Every zook must be watched. He has kinks in his soul. That's why, as a youth, I made watching my goal and watching zooks for the zook watching border patrol. So you have the yooks and the zooks, and they're divided over this one thing that, that is caused this huge division between them and it's whether they eat their bread with the butter side up or if they eat their bread with the butter side down and so this division has caused them to build a wall in between their civilizations and has caused this grandfather to kind of be the one who's going to watch and make sure the other tribe doesn't kind of get a heads up on their tribe and so what begins is this arms race of sorts as these two are kind of trying to watch one another so their uh, their way of doing things doesn't spread to the other side and so they start building these, these weapons and, and things to, to kind of defend one another against this. And, and we look at this and we think, like, this is, 
This is a pretty insignificant problem to have, right, between the Yooks and the Zooks. I mean, they're pretty similar people. You look at the pictures like you just, you look about the same. You, you don't live far apart. You both like bread with butter on it. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of similarities here. But there's this one minute little detail that has largely divided them and it caused them basically to be in an arms race ready to blow one another off the face of Dr. Seuss's world. And when we look around at, at, our, at our world and place that we live and in our culture, we, we see there's so many insignificant little things like that that the world's ready to divide on. And there's any number of insignificant butter-side-down, butter-side-up kind of issues that people will divide on. People will divide on just about anything in the world. Now, when I say that, many of you are even thinking of the church, saying that the church is not much different than that. And they'll divide on just about anything. And, and maybe they're, they're a little bit like this story where they have one thing in common. Yeah, they, they want to be here to worship God. And so they're all loving this bread with butter on it, but they want to do it differently. And so this is what divides them. They build these huge walls up and start these arms races against one another. And the scripture has a better, more glorious picture of the church than that. And in this world that is so full of division, so full of insignificant issues causing huge splits among us, the church has a chance to give that better picture, to be that better picture. And you see, the church is to be this unique place where we have a unique unity that cannot and will not be imaged in the world because we are uniting around something in all of our diversity. And that can't be pictured anywhere else quite like it's pictured in the church. And so as Paul writes to the first Corinthians, or to the Corinthians, in this book of 1 Corinthians, this is his admonition as he kind of gets going in some of the problems that are happening in Corinth. He, he kind of gives them this, and, and for us as well, that they are to be united. And they are to be united by focusing primarily on Jesus and keeping the gospel central. They are to be united by focusing primarily on Jesus and keeping the gospel central. And in order to kind of feel the proper weight of this passage, we have to kind of go back into verse 9. So if you have a Bible, we'll start in verse 9. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The end of this verse is speaking once again, God is our sustainer. He's the one that keeps us until the end. He's called us into this, and he's called us into what? Into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so if you are a believer, if you put your faith in Jesus, you've been called into the fellowship of his son. And so what he's saying there is that if you're a believer, you have fellowship with Jesus Christ yourself. There's a closeness there. There's a uniqueness there. And that fellowship means that. There's togetherness. But it's not just the fellowship with Jesus that you have. It's the fellowship of his son. And so that fellowship is speaking of not just with Christ himself, but with his body, the church, with his bride, the church. And so when you come into the fellowship of his son, you're coming into the fellowship not only of just Jesus Christ, but of his church as well. And so this is included in verse 9. You were called into the fellowship of his son, namely Jesus and his church. There is no such thing as someone who is called into fellowship with Jesus that has not been called into fellowship with his church. One author says this. He says, my being in Christ means being in Christ with those others who are in Christ. And that seems like an oversimplified way of saying it, but it's perfect. My being in Christ means being in Christ with those others who are in Christ. And you will find no other way of doing this in the New Testament whatsoever. If you are in Christ, you are in Christ with the others who are in Christ. Christ. That is what it means to be in the fellowship of his son. 
And so this fellowship that you have with Jesus, it also has created this fellowship that you have with other people, with the church. And it only follows that it's that way, right? Jesus calls the church what? His bride. And so if you, if you love Jesus, it would seem pretty odd that you would just hate his bride. He calls the church his body. And so if you love the head, Jesus calls himself the head of the church, it seemed pretty weird if you just like, I just, I'll take the head, the rest of the body I can do without and just have a talking head. That doesn't make any sense and it's the image that Jesus has given and it's a perfect image for what's going on here. If you're in Christ, you're a part of the body and so you need to plug into that part of the body because the body functions with everybody together. And so you've been called into the fellowship of his son uniquely individually with Jesus, which is amazing enough, but also with his people. This is the fellowship that believers have been called into. He's called us into community with his church. He's called us to share this common life. And that's what it means to have fellowship, is to share a common life with one another. You're sharing a common life with Christ, and you're sharing common life with his church. And so what does Paul tell this fellowship of believers? As they've been called in the fellowship of his son, what does he do for them? And he says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And so as the fellowship of the Son, Paul is appealing to them. He's urging them to be united. Now look at how he, he gives this exhortation to them. He, he addresses them as, as brothers. And Paul does this a lot in 1 Corinthians. One of the hardest letters he's written with some of the toughest language of exhortation. He, he's appealing to them with these familial terms. Brothers. He comes alongside them as family. The church is to be that family. And Paul comes alongside them as family, appealing to them, saying, brothers. And he does this, he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul could have come and said, in the name of Paul, an apostle. And that holds authority. As, a, as an apostle, he holds authority within his office and within who he is. But he doesn't do that. Because in these first several verses, Paul has been trying to consistently point them to Christ Jesus and his authority and his sufficiency for all of their problems and for all of their needs. And so he comes to them in the authority and in the name of Jesus Christ appealing to them. He's, just, he's not just saying, this is me as an apostle saying these things, although that's enough. He's saying, this is the authority of Christ that we're speaking from. This is the one that we're trying to follow. This is how we're coming to these things. And so what does he tell them? He wants them to agree that they'd have no divisions, that they'd be united, that they'd have, in a sense, this disposition of unity. So he wants them to, to say the same thing and, and have the same mind. In other words, they have this peaceful coexistence with one another. He wants their, their default position to be one of unity, to be one of agreement. So in other words, they're all standing ready to agree. They're standing ready to unite with one another. We see that division is coming, he speaks of division, he doesn't want there to be any division, but division is the very opposite of fellowship. And so if they've been called into the fellowship of his son with Christ himself, with one another, then division would be the opposite of these things. Fellowship is this togetherness, division is, is dividing, you're, you're divisive, you're, you're apart from one another when you're supposed to have this togetherness. And so he says to them to agree that there be no divisions. There should not be divisions among them because he says, there are divisions. He's appealing to them because there are problems. And so he wants them to agree to be united. And when he says be united, he's saying what you need to do is, is put this back into proper order. 
Put this back into its proper condition. Put this back and restore what's been messed up. You see that word he uses for united, to be united, is the same word that is used when the, the fishermen are mending their nets. And so when, when fishermen have these nets, they take them out and they throw them and they, they get used a lot. And so if you have holes in the nets, you're losing money. You're losing kind of what could be your well-being, your way of life. And so if the nets were having problems, if there was, there was holes in the nets, if they were getting uh, kind of scraggly and needing some work, you take them out of the water and you start fixing them up so that nothing gets out. You, you restore them. You, you mend them. Fish are getting out. You've got to take care of this problem. Let's restore this thing so that you can catch fish. And this is what Paul is telling them about division. There's a problem here. Things are going wrong. Things are getting out that shouldn't be getting out. It's not working right. So let's put this thing back into proper condition. Let's work this thing out and find restoration here. Agree that there be no division among you. Be united. Now this is such an important topic that Jesus himself, before he goes to the cross, prays for the church that they would be united. In John chapter 17, starting in verse 20, Jesus, in hours before he's getting ready to be crucified, knowing that that's coming, stops and prays for his disciples and stops and prays for future disciples, stops and prays for us. And this is one of the things he says. He says in verse 20, I don't ask for these only, but, for, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, that they be united, just as you, the Father, and I are one, or in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. They may be one, just as the Father are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is praying for this unity because it's going to affect not only their fellowship with Christ himself, but with one another. And it's also going to affect the mission that they've been sent on, that the world may see these things. It matters even on mission that we be united as a church. It's important because we're in the fellowship, not of sojourn, but in the fellowship of his son. We bear the name in our fellowship of Jesus himself. And so we're out in the world, we're bearing that name as well. And we want to bear that name well for his glory and by his grace. And so we don't want to have division amongst us. Division will kill fellowship. It's the very opposite thing of fellowship. If there's division, there's not going to be fellowship. Individually, it's going to kill your fellowship with Jesus, and corporately, it will kill our fellowship as believers together. And so we ought to have this basic disposition of unity. Do we have that? Do we have this default position to say, I'm ready to unite. I'm ready to be in agreement. I'm ready to be united with brothers and sisters. I'm ready to restore where there's problems, ready to work where there's divisions? Are we looking, looking for those ways to unite, to agree, to be together? One author says this, it says, there needs to be a will to unity. Where the will to unity is absent or weak, nearly anything can be divisive. Butter side up, butter side down. Doesn't matter, that can be divisive if there's no will to be united. But the, where, where the will to unity is strong, even major disagreements can be resolved or handled in such a way as to avoid, avoid division. Do we have a will to unity? 
Is that what we desire? Do we agree amongst us that there be no divisions, that we want to be united? And where there are these problems, we're ready to restore them, to mend the problems so that we can be united as we bear the name of Christ as a body. This disposition, if we're going to have it, has to be an outflow of our fellowship with Jesus himself. If we have close fellowship with Jesus, we're going to want to have close fellowship with his family, with his people, with his bride. And so if we're going to have this disposition of unity, this disposition of agreement, we're going to need to let it flow out of our fellowship with Jesus himself and our love for him. So in a world that will divide on almost any issue, the church should be different and should be united. But how can we do this practically? Are we to just agree on anything? Like, I'm ready to agree on anything. You like that? Great, I like that too. Let's just go with that. Oh, you don't like that? Me neither. Just kidding about that whole thing. Is that, is that practically how we're supposed to be? Is that what we mean by this readiness to agree, to be united? Well, I think it's helpful to see as Paul continues to address them, starting in verse 11. He says, For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, so Paul's, he's gotten this report about this church from Chloe's people, and it's not a good one. There's, there's quarreling, there's discord, there's disputes among their body. And, and quarreling is this word that Paul uses elsewhere, and he always uses it in this list of vices. He does it in Romans, he does it in Galatians. This is one of these things that is not supposed to be part of the ordinary Christian life. These are the things that you're supposed to put off, this quarreling, these divisions, this discord. This isn't supposed to be a part of it. So Paul has told other people, stop this quarreling. Like, put those things aside. This is what he says here. And he explains further what he means by division. He says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And so there are these different groups that are quarreling amongst themselves. And, and clearly this division has affected the whole body. He says that each one of you is saying these things. And so everybody is involved in this thing. Whether or not they're strongly for one of these parties or not, they're all in this and it's affected every single one of them. Each one of them has been affected. But notice what he doesn't do here. Paul doesn't attack these leaders individually. Paul's listed as one of the leaders, so I'm assuming that he thinks that he's in this right place. At least he's trying to be, right? Later, he's going to go on in 1 Corinthians and affirm Apollos and his ministry. Certainly, he doesn't disapprove of Christ and his leading and teaching. And so he's not attacking these teachers. And so it's not as if something wrong is associated with these individuals themselves. Notice something else he doesn't do here. He doesn't point out any sort of theological divide. He doesn't give any other details other than some are saying, I follow this, I follow this, and I follow this. That's, that's really the only details he gets. And so I don't think that we're supposed to speculate on what they are dividing on. And that's not the root of the problem. We'll get to the root of the problem, but he, he's not trying to, to dice them up and say, you guys are this party and this party. You guys are all differing on this one theological. He's not what he's saying. He's going with a different direction. He's getting to the root of the problem. But, but notice he kind of throws this kind of curveball in there when he says, I follow Christ. You would think that if any group that Paul's going to affirm, he would affirm the, the Christ-following group, right? Like, following Christ, isn't that the goal, Paul? Don't we want people to be saying together, I follow Christ? And so why in the world would you bring that up as if it's a bad thing? Well, it, once again, it, it's getting to the root of the problem. The, this Christ group is being just as divisive, it seems, as any of the other groups. Maybe they have some sort of spiritual elitism and say, oh, you silly guys, you're just messing around following Paul and Apostle. I follow Christ. 
makes our group better than your group. Find, trying to find some sense of greatness and worth in and of our own selves over these other groups because, well, after all, we're the holy ones. We're following Christ himself. You guys are following these crazy uh, humans. and we, we have a real Lord and Savior who's been raised from that. We follow Christ. You know, maybe that's part of it. But the root of the division is not that they are just have this theological debate, and it's not about the leaders. The root of this problem is this radical individuality that is rampant among the Corinthian church. We have to remember our context here. John said this in his sermon to start us off, but I'm just going to read a part of this, the quote. The ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual. In a word, These were men who recognized no superior and no law but their own desires. The problem isn't these leaders or any sort of theological issue. That might be some of the ramification. The problem is that there's parties at all. The problem is that they are, they do have a Christ group and they do have a Paul group and they do have an apostle. That's the problem. That there's some sort of I follow, I, I, I. There's this radical individuality that is killing their fellowship. And this is what Paul is calling them on. They love in their culture this disputation to fight one another and to exalt themselves by trying and tying their life to someone who's significant, someone who's great. And so if Paul looks good, I follow Paul. And that makes me look good by being associated with him. Or if Paulus looks good, I follow Paulus. And so they're, they're picking these things and they're tying their names to it so that they can affect their own sense of worth, their own sense of greatness. So they are associating with these high-profile figures. And everyone is putting up their figure as the one to follow so that their name can look good as well. The root problem isn't some sort of theological difference. It isn't these leaders are teaching something crazy. The root problem is this unashamed commitment to the individual. I, I, I. All about the individual. And even the Christ group, even their group has the same issue. Their stance is a way to highlight their own individuality. And so what is happening in this church at Corinth is that they're more enamored. They're more enamored with some sort of leader or personality than they are with Christ. Or they're more enamored with somebody's opinions than they are with the word of Christ. They're more enamored with the individual than they are with the whole. They'd lost their focus on Jesus and they'd shifted that focus to some sort of other thing. I remember when Peter Jesus sends the disciples out in front of him, get in a boat, head across the other side, I'll meet you on the other side. So the disciples get in, they go in the boat. Jesus stays and he prays for a while, but after a while he decides to just meet them. And so he starts walking on water. The disciples see this and they're frightened. They don't know what's going on, but they see like, oh, this is Jesus. And so Peter says like, if you're Christ, why don't you just tell me to come out on the waves with you? And what does Peter do? He he goes out on the waves, but what what does the scripture say after he does that? He starts to look around, he sees the wind. And he starts to see, like, I'm in the water, there's wind, there's waves, this is a bad idea. It doesn't seem like this is going to work for very long. And so he loses his focus, turns it from Christ to the wind, and he starts to sink. And this is what is happening in Corinth. They, they turned their focus from Jesus, and they'd started to divide, they'd started to, to sink into these wrong, individual-seeking glories. We must not lose our focus on Jesus. He is our all in all. He is our sustainer. He is our savior. He is our redeemer. He is our king. He is our Lord. He is our life. And so we have to see everything 
working for God's kingdom, not our own. We must be more enamored with the words of the scripture than any words of, of any leader or any person or even our own opinions. We have to be more enamored with Jesus himself than any leader or even ourselves. We gotta focus on Christ. You see, we have the same tendency to want to attach our name to something that makes us look good. I mean, think about sports teams. Why do people just gravitate towards some team and grab a hold of it, and then they want them to win? Why? Because they're tying their name to it. They're tying their identity to it. They're tying their success to it. So if the team loses, they're devastated because it means that they've lost. And it's not just sports. I mean, think about how we name drop. We like to do that. Why do we like to name drop? Why do we like to know some sort of intimate knowledge about somebody that's famous or popular? Because we want to tie our name to that and show that we're somebody by doing that. And so we'll drop a few names here and there. Like, oh, yeah, I know him. Oh, yeah, we hang out all the time. He called me the other day. And we like to do that because we like to associate our name with that to make us look good, to make us look like we're on an important level. We do the same thing with clothing. That clothing, they don't hide the name brand on the, on the inside and say, forget about, you know, who, who, just does it look good? No, we want the name on the outside. Print it big so that we can tie our name. Like, look at this great designer. I'm tying my name to them. And we're associating ourselves with these things so that we can look greater. There's still this radical individuality that's, that's inside of all of us. We do the same thing. And so we have to be careful to focus primarily on Jesus, not sort of some, some sort of personality. Not some sort of earthly leader, but we're focusing on Christ. So how do we do this? We look to him. We believe in him. We trust him. We find acceptance in him. We find our identity in him. We find our all in all in Christ. That's how we focus on him. The church doesn't need a bunch of people saying, I follow this or that guy. What we need is for everyone to say, I'm with Jesus and I'm going to follow my pastor and my leader or whoever as they follow Christ. And where they don't follow Christ, I'm still with Jesus. That's what we need. And so the church is to be this unique place that, that is unique in its unity where we can come with all these differences, with all these different backgrounds and, and socioeconomic statuses and every sort of sense of race known to man. And we can come and we can say, but we are united and we are agreeing to be united for one another because we bear the name of Christ and we are his fellowship. And we cannot do this if we are focused on the individual, we cannot do this if we are celebrating this radical individualism. We cannot do this if we're focused on ourselves. Individualism will kill unity in the church. And so we must not lose our focus on Christ. We must not lose our focus on Jesus. And we be united by focusing primarily on him. And if our focus is on Jesus, that means, as Paul continues, that the gospel is going to be central. And this is what Paul urges them to do, to keep the gospel central. And so they can be united by focusing on Jesus. And as they focus on Jesus, they're keeping the gospel central. Look at verse 13. He says to them, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I mean, what great questions. He brings to the front, like all this stuff will be brought up in these questions. Was Paul crucified for you? Is Christ divided? Clearly Christ isn't divided, but as if they're acting as he were divided. And he's not divided. And so Paul asks them these questions, saying there's only one undivided Christ. And Paul wasn't crucified for you, or Apollos for that matter. No one else was crucified for you. It was only Jesus. And so in asking these questions, what he's doing them is reminding them of gospel truth. And what is the gospel truth? That Christ was crucified. And he was crucified for his body. 
Paul didn't do these things. He's pointing them back to the gospel. He's pointing them to the reality that Jesus is the one who lived a substitutionary life, that lived a life for people where they couldn't succeed, he succeeded for them. That he's the one who came and in his own body bore the sins that people deserved. He was doing that as a substitute. Paul didn't do that. Apostles didn't do that. I didn't do that. Jesus is the one who did that. And more than that, he didn't stay dead, but was raised and now sits enthroned in heaven and he is interceding on behalf of these people. Paul is not doing those things. No earthly leader does those things. Paul is pointing them back to the gospel. Christ was crucified. It's him we're to keep focused on. It's his gospel that is to be central. Human leaders aren't the source of redemption. They're not the source of salvation. They're just messengers. Christ is central. And so if the gospel is central and Jesus is the focus, then it's going to be trivial rather than you say, I follow Paul or I follow Paulus. Because Christ is the focus. Because the gospel is central. In dividing They'd miss the point of the gospel that Christ had lived, that he had died, that he was raised, that he's the one who gives grace, that it's all about Christ. But he even goes a step further in verse 14. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I didn't baptize, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone. And so it seems that. Who baptized whom was, was important. It was even part of their division. And so they were even saying, well, Paul baptized me or Apollos baptized me. And so Paul says here, I'm glad I didn't baptize many of you. you know, I don't want you to divide on something like this. He didn't want them to get sidetracked or hung up on that. Because that's not the, the issue. That's not the focus. And so what he's not doing here is he's not downplaying baptism itself. What he is doing is downplaying who baptizes whom. He's saying, that's not important. You're baptized in the name of who? Not Paul, not Apollos. You're baptized in the name of Lord Jesus Christ. That's the part of our commission to go and baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not in the name of, of Dylan, not in the name of Paul or Apollos, but we're baptizing them into Christ. And as this baptism symbol, they're to be united with Christ and with his body. There's nothing to do about who is baptizing who. Jesus is the name that's the most important there. So once again, he, he's reminding them of the gospel. This is to be a gospel-centered focus here. This is what is central. Because baptism was a way of seeing the gospel. It still is a way of seeing the gospel. And the gospel isn't about an individual. It's about Jesus. And so in the, in the, the form of baptism, we see the gospel that someone who's been changed and transformed by God's grace, going under the water as if this this passing through judgment and coming out of judgment on the other side, cleansed and free of sin. It's a beautiful picture of Christ saving people and then uniting them completely clean, completely forgiven, passing through judgment with no judgment left. So in baptism, they were to see the gospel. And Paul doesn't want them distorting the gospel by saying, I was baptized by Paul and that's more important than someone who was baptized. No, you're baptized in the name of Christ. And the gospel is central. And so this is what he wants them to see. That even in baptism, the gospel is the central part of the message. And indeed, Paul goes on in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Central to Paul's mission wasn't primarily baptism. It was primarily preaching the gospel. This is what he came to Corinth to do, to preach and proclaim the gospel. 
He says in Acts 20, verse 24, I don't account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I might finish the course and the ministry I received from Christ Jesus. What is that ministry? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is Paul's primary focus, to testify to this gospel, to preach this gospel. This is how he understands his primary ministry. His primary mission is to be about the gospel. And so he doesn't want them to lose focus. He understands that the gospel is central. He understands what it means to proclaim the gospel. And he wants the gospel to be the life and the mission of the church. And he wants it to be kept central. And so that means that he sees as of utmost importance to his church. If he, if he is coming and saying, my primary goal is to preach the gospel, what do you think he thinks is primary for the churches? The gospel. That the gospel be kept central. And he comes and he doesn't proclaim all these crazy things. He comes proclaiming the gospel. So they will keep it central as well. And so he doesn't preach the gospel, as he says, to be on some sort of display or to give some sort of great speech, to be impressive to them or to to get their applause or their praise. Now that's what the Corinthians did. That's what true Corinthians did, is that they wanted this. They wanted to put on a rhetorical display. They wanted this, this exaltation of the self. They wanted someone to come and give this great speech so that they could be celebrated. And Paul says, I didn't do that. That likely fed into some of their divisions. And Paul says, I didn't come for that. He didn't come with this, this great skill of trying to win these arguments or trying to impress them with who he was or, or he was trying to put on this great display and not worry so much about the content. No, Paul was all about the content. He didn't preach Christ and the cross to win admiration, to put on display or to win an argument. He preached the cross so that they would look to Christ, so that they would believe upon Christ, so that they would be saved by Christ. He did it to exalt Jesus, not his own name. And so the gospel was, was Paul's primary gospel. This is what he came to do. And he wants the church to keep it central to everything else. He wants everything else to flow from it. Now, you might see, I don't know if it's up here in this next slide, but, but we have this logo here at Sojourn. And I honestly, I know the person that did this. I don't know if they had this in mind when they designed the logo, but this is my artistic interpretation of the Sojourn logo. So here we go. You see, in the middle of those arrows, there's this blank spot. There's, there's nothing there, right? And so I'm going to interpret it as an artist. I'm not very good at this, but let's give it a shot. All right, in the middle there, what's to be kept central is what I've been saying over and over again is that the gospel is to be central. And so I'm interpreting that space as the gospel and that everything else is going out from there. So all the arrows, they're going out from the gospel. So the gospel is the central piece to the church It is what is essential. It is what we must have, and it must remain in that place. Everything else, whether we change the carpet color, whether we change paint, whether we move buildings, all else has to flow out of that central point, out of the gospel. This is what Paul wants for his churches. And so what we do in our corporate worship, it flows out of the gospel. What we do in our home groups, it has to flow out of the gospel. What we do in our individual conversations, it has to flow out of the gospel. We don't have to agree on every little thing. But we have to agree there. We have to agree on the gospel. A church that doesn't keep the gospel central is divided, it's united around the wrong things, or it's not a church at all. If the gospel is not central, you're either dividing around something that you shouldn't be dividing around, you are agreeing something you shouldn't be agreeing on, or you're not a church at all. The gospel must be central. And so Paul here 
by reminding them of the gospel, reminding them Christ is the one who is crucified for you. You were baptized in the name of Christ. Cross, the cross, that's what I came to preach. I want you guys to know about the cross and Christ on the cross. By reminding them of these things, he's encouraging them to keep it central, but he's also doing something else. He's also giving them the very thing that they need to be united. You see, the what to be united around and the how to be united around it, Paul doesn't keep that from them. The what to be united around is the gospel. And the how to be united around it is to keep the gospel central. You see, the Corinthians were pretty messed up, very much unlike us. And so they're not united. They're going to need help. They can't be united in and of their own power. And Paul gives them the very power they need to be united. It's the gospel. And in giving them the gospel, he's telling them, this is also how you can be united. Sojourn, this is also how we can be united. It's not in our own power to say, we're all going to agree. Well, if we do that, we're going to divide. But if we trust in Christ and if we trust in the gospel, then we know that that gospel empowers us to be united. We'll need Jesus to be united. The Corinthians needed Jesus to be united. But they were divided. And we will likely disagree on some things. We might even have division at some point. And so what then? Just split? Go our separate ways? A lot of churches do that. Do we just decide like, well, we'll just be okay with division. We'll just, we'll just live with it, right? That seems better than splitting, so let's, let's just do that. We just quit church altogether? Say, I'm just done with this. I know this wasn't going to work out. I'm done forever. What are we, what are we to do? We need the same message preached to us in those moments. We need this gospel. We'll need this gospel. The gospel that says that division does not have to be the final word. The gospel that says all this turmoil and all these disputes among you, that does not have to be the final word. Paul is in writing to the Corinthians and reminding them of these truths, is telling them division does not have to be the final word for you, Corinth. If you would trust in the gospel, then division and sin and disagreement and sinful individualism, none of those have to be the final word. The gospel can be the final word. And the gospel comes to us and it offers this forgiveness where we've sinned. And it offers bringing restoration and reconciliation where there's brokenness and division. We might disagree. We might have division, but we don't have to let those things completely split the church. We don't have to let those things be the final word about the church that we have here. We can let the gospel be the final word and continue to keep it central and point to it in all things. You see, the church is a unique place. Sojourn, Enid, is a unique place. In a world that is divided on any number of insignificant issues, we have a chance to display a much better picture. A picture that is a display of the unity that can be accomplished when there's this huge diversity amongst the people. A unity that resembles the unity that God has himself. Although he is one, he is distinct in his being. This incomprehensible thought that we have the chance to resemble an image within our 
body. Even though we are radically different people, we can all come together around that central, central point, the gospel, and agree and say yes and amen. In a world that is full of division, we can show a unique picture. And the truth is, the church has been given a mission. Not just as individuals, but as a church to go and make disciples of all the nations, that every tongue, tribe, and people would hear of this gospel. And this mission, it's going to require a lot of the church. This mission requires that the church be focused on Jesus. This mission requires that the church keep the gospel central. This mission requires that the church be united. Because this mission will require a very diverse group of people. And that diversity is not coming from the world. It's only coming from the church. If we are going to accomplish the mission that Christ has given us to accomplish, we're going to need some unique unity in the midst of our diversity. Because we will never accomplish this mission or make progress if we're divided. And so brothers and sisters... Let's be united by focusing on Jesus, by keeping the gospel central. Let's pray. Father, we are so prone to wonder. We feel it. We are so prone to seek our own. We're so prone to make insignificant things significant. And so we're asking for your grace. We're asking for the gospel to continue to penetrate our dull, hardened hearts so that we would be a church that is not known for what it's divided upon, but it's known for its unique unity in the midst of crazy amounts of division all through the world. God, we're not just asking for the name of Sojourn. We're asking because we bear your name and we bear your name in this community. We bear your name in this church. And so we're asking for your name to be exalted in and through our unity. But we're not just asking for Enid either. We're asking for the entire world. That Thailand, that Zambia, that Niger, Nigeria, that Iran, and Iraq, and all these places could be shaped and shaken by our unique unity. And this is what you do with your people who are willing to submit to you. And I pray that that's what we'd be. That you would be Lord and we would let you be Lord and head of the church. And that we would follow as humble humble body parts. Christ, may you be exalted in our body and in our unity. Amen.